Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you had a good weekend, and I hope all of you have had a good start to your week. And for some of you, it already might be Tuesday, wherever you may be living in the world, but it's good to be on the air with all of you, my faithful 101 podcast listeners, all the time. And I want to thank all of you for being continuous uh, learners and also getting the word out to others whom are interested in history, not just history, but wanting to learn more about the subjects, or rather I should say the topics per the book discussions that I have um, discussed with all of you since uh, June of last year. Well, uh, the last time I was on the air, uh, we were uh, learning about the Bradleys' um, sudden demise. In other words, the Brad, the, sh the ship as a whole breaking apart, um, a loud noise occurred, and it wasn't just, you know, a loud noise, but a noise that resulted in the decimation of a ship. Now, I mean, this ship is on the verge of sinking, but the thing that we have to keep in mind is that no matter how well prepared, and I'll mention this again um, later on in this uh, podcast episode, but we must keep in mind is that no matter how well prepared a crew might be for the unexpected, we have to keep in mind that we still can't control when the unexpected happens, regardless of the um, scope or regardless of the size of the matter before us. So in other words, when I say before us, I'm thinking about the crew of the Bradley. We have to put ourselves in the shoes of all 35 crewmen of the Carl D. Bradley. Not only just Captain Roland Bryan, but we've got to think about uh, Elmer Fleming. We have to think about Frank Mays. I know I've mentioned some other men's names, but we have to think about what it must have been like on November 18, 1958. Yes, this ship is 31 years old. We know that this ship is in need of repairs, and the ship would have already been in Wisconsin had it not been for a last-minute call. And now, all of a sudden, we're um, stuck in between a matter of life and death. Well, we do know that Elmer Fleming has, has uh, sent out Mayday calls, and we're going to uh, learn um, exactly uh, whether or not someone does respond to a Mayday call. We're also going to find out how um, how the, the crewmen um, fight for their lives in a matter of um, minutes, because not all shipwrecks are alike. Some shipwrecks take longer in terms of uh, ship sinking. Some ships, their um, demise happens much faster. Of course, when I think of famous shipwrecks, I think of the Titanic. I know I've mentioned the Titanic uh, quite a bit, uh, but what people don't realize is, is that for the Titanic, she took two and a half hours to sink. And yet, and yet she splits in two and uh, sinks to the bottom of the North Atlantic Ocean. The Lusitania took less than an hour, probably at best 15 to 20 minutes for that ship to have uh, completely uh, sunk to the bottom of the uh, ocean. But we're going to find out with the Carl D. Bradley, we're going to learn in this podcast episode just how long it took that ship to sink. I'm not trying to give anything away, folks, but the reality is, is that at some point we are going to have to learn 
that this ship uh, did not make it, and that's what our focus is going to be on um, this uh, episode uh, to the wreck of uh, Michael Schumacher's book, The Wreck of the Carl D. Bradley, A True Story of Loss, Survival, and Rescue at Sea. So our first leadoff um, question for this episode is the following. Is Ray Brunette a radio operator? The answer is yes. He works at Marine he works at the Marine radio station in Port Washington, Wisconsin, which is located outside of uh, Sheboygan. He is the first uh, person to hear Elmer Fleming's Mayday call for help. His station keeps Channel 51 connected 24 hours daily. Thank goodness that uh, someone is keeping that uh, radio station being uh, Channel 51 connected 24 hours a day. Why is that, folks? For one, shipwrecks just don't happen at any particular time of the day. In other words, they're not confined to um, after hours, meaning um, once um, darkness has settled in. Shipwrecks, shipwrecks can happen in broad daylight. The weather changes in broad daylight. So there has to be a constant um, channel of communications taking place 24 hours daily. And back to the Titanic real quick, one of the biggest um, recommendations that went into play two years after, well, there were, uh, there were many of them, but uh, one of them had to do with um, ships being, um, their uh, operating systems had to be on 24 hours before and leading up to April 14th, uh, 15th of 1912 when the Titanic sank. Ships could turn off their operation uh, systems, or a.k.a. Marconi wire communication systems at any time, day or night, and your communication systems could have been very limited as to whom you could have gotten through to when relaying an important message and whether or not you could get through to other um, ships if your first choice uh, did not uh, uh, go through in terms of uh, communicating to a ship that was closer to you. So, so yes, uh, it was tragic enough that for the Titanic that 1,500 people lost their lives, only to have to put into play two years later a better communication system to ensure that, um, that if a ship was in danger that, um, that there would be a better likelihood of survival for uh, more than, say, 700 passengers aboard a uh, luxury liner ship. But anyways, you know, uh, there's a big difference between 35 crewmen versus over 2,200 people aboard the uh, Titanic. But nonetheless, it is very good to know that, um, that at the Marine Radio Station in Port Washington, Wisconsin, that Channel 51 is connected 24 hours daily. What I also found interesting about Channel 51 when having read this book not long ago was that this particular channel handled all communications traffic along the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans, including the Ohio and Mississippi Rivers to the Gulf of Mexico. That is a very, very broad range of communication for this uh, channel to have. So let's just keep in mind that just because... It, there's a channel out there for uh, communications um, traffic purposes. It's not confined to just one section of the country being, say, like for the Great Lakes, for example. However, Channel 51 should only be reserved for dire 
ur urgent matters. In other words, it shouldn't we shouldn't be getting on Channel 51 to say, oh, hi, uh, Mr. Jones, how are you doing, and all that. No, that, that is not the reason for being on Channel 51, folks. You are using Channel 51 for emergency matters, emergency matters that also involve life and death. Is it fair to say that Elmer Fleming did the right thing by calling or by radioing in Channel 51? Yes, because this was a matter of life and death. Given the Bradley's uh, current, current position being 12 miles southwest of Goal Island, where she's breaking up and about to go down, a.k.a. sinking, is northern Lake Michigan home to multiple islands? Okay, why would multiple islands have any kind of uh, impact on the Bradley's uh, current position and knowing that, sh that it's just a short amount of time before she could sink? Well, the thing here is that many of these islands along nor the northern part of Lake Michigan are uninhabited. So just because there's an island, folks, it doesn't automatically mean that people live there. As a matter of fact, in order for an island to be an island, it has to have two trees or more. It has to be above water 365 days a year. So keep that in mind. However, many of these islands that are uninhabited also pose as hazards to boats in the greater area. In other words, many of these islands are inhabited by shoals. And what are shoals? They are, um, what do you call it? Like they're um, barges, like sand barges, rocks. Um, shoals are usually found in shallower waters where, you know, ships, where the ship's crew thinks they have the, the room to get by and navigate properly only to hit a shoal and run aground. So that's where these uninhabited islands pose such great risks for uh, ships navigating this part of Lake Michigan. However, there are some islands along the northern part of Lake Michigan that ironically are the opposite of many of the uninhabited islands. Take, for example, Plum Island, which is in Wisconsin's Door County Peninsula. And Door County, folks, is spelled like closing a door, D-O-O-R. And then you have Beaver Island uh, to the north, which uh, both of these islands have lifeboat stations. Well, I guess the bigger question is, if they have lifeboat stations, could they come to the Bradley's rescue? Well, let's find out. Did Ray Brunette hear multiple frantic voices of Bradley crewmen via radio. Well, if you know that it's just a matter of a few minutes before the inevitable will happen, that is the ship completely, not only just completely breaking apart, but going down, I think it's fair to say that anybody at Channel, at, uh, at the uh, station where Captain, or rather where Ray Brunette is at, and is uh, listening in on Channel 51. Yes, it's a, it's a situation that, it's probably one that he would have never forgotten, but two, it's a situation where he knows that every man is running for his life, every man is left to fend for himself. I mean, yes, Captain Roland Bryan will be giving orders, but these orders might not last 30 minutes, because the Bradley is taking on so much water, the Bradley is... This is a ship that was on borrowed time. This is a ship that's now become so stressed out that 
that the whole, the stern and the bow, everything is just giving way. There's nothing that can keep this ship afloat. So, yes, Ray Brunette heard multiple frantic voices of Bradley Crewman via radio. He heard Captain Roland Bryan shouting out orders to get life jackets, including, including hearing other crewmen say the following in quotations, We are breaking in half. Get the life jackets. We are sinking. If I was in Ray Brunette's shoes and I heard that, to me, that's chilling. To me, it's it's terrifying. Yes, as an operator, you probably would have to be expected to be prepared for this kind of news. But knowing that these men only had minutes to spare before their uh, fate could have been sealed, that's frightening. It's one thing for a ship to hit a, hit a sandbar. It's one thing for a ship to have run aground even though that could be a problem as well. But when you're dealing with only minutes and you're dealing with a ship that's broken, not just broken, but it's split in two, yeah, it's um, it's very frantic and terrifying. And now the bigger question is, what kind of a crew can you as a radio operator help salvage to get out to the scene of the wreck in as quick of time to, with the hopes that, okay, if maybe not all 35 crewmen could be saved, that with the hopes of saving 10 or more at best. Okay, so um, let's get to a little geography here. Does anybody want to take a guess where Charlevoix, Michigan is located? Or, I sh or rather, I should say that the uh, town or city in Michigan known as Charlevoix and that is spelled C-H-A-R-L-E-V-O-I-X. Does that sound like French or Italian to you all? Well, the answer is easy, French, Charlevoix, depending on how you best pronounce it. It's located in the western part of the state. However, it's not located, located anywhere near Detroit, Flint, uh, Grand Rapids, or Lansing, which are all further... Um, in the down, uh, what do you call it, the downstate part of uh, Michigan, uh, well to the south. Uh, Charlevoix is located um, n just north of Traverse City. Well, what makes Charlevoix um, unique? I'm not talking about like vacation uh, purposes here, folks. What makes Charlevoix unique here in this situation is that there is a Coast Guard station lo that is located closest to where the Bradley is sinking. And it becomes the first U.S. Coast Guard station to respond to Elmer Fleming's May Day emergency call. So, okay, so Ray Brunette has, was the first to technically hear multiple voices of the Bradley crewmen. But now the U.S. Coast Guard station in Charlevoix will become the first to actually respond to Elmer Fleming's May Day emergency call. And there is a, a sign of some other good news here. It will only be short. Um, it will only be short, but it will be, in my opinion, good news to know that more than one um, station, more than one or two stations, did pick up the warning. Elmer Fleming's Mayday emergency call did come through other Bradley fleet boats on the water, most notably the John G. Munson, whom was sailing Lake Huron, bound for Rogers City. 
isn't that where a majority of the um, men aboard the Carl D. Bradley hail from, folks? Yes, because remember from our from the previous podcast, we learned that 26 out of the 35 crewmen aboard the uh, Bradley hailed from uh, Rogers City. Now, the John G. Munson did have its issues with regards to uh, dealing with the storm, but not like the Bradley. As a matter of fact, by the time the Carl D. Bradley, um, towards the end of its life, the John G. Munson has now taken over as the biggest um, freighter out on the waters for the Bradley Transportation Company. Uh, The Carl D. Bradley herself was uh, 638 feet long. The, The John G. Munson... Uh, was 666 feet long. I'm not sure how old the Munson was by 1958, but obviously it's uh, taken over the Bradley in terms of being the longest ship. But what I found very interesting here, per what I had read, well, I mean, for one, this book obviously was very well worth reading, but two, we have to be reminded of the fact that um, it's one thing to be working not just for a ship with this particular transportation company, I think the same would have been for any other ships with any other uh, shipping companies. But many of the um, men who work, say, for Bradley Transportation Company, not only do they know each other, but many of them are linked in terms of um, through marriage, they are linked through uh, friendships. It's one of those um, professions where everyone knows each other. There's really, it's almost impossible to avoid not knowing if you know someone who knows your relatives or knows um, of a cousin or a brother-in-law. Everybody's bound to know one another in some form or another. So what do the John G. Munson crewmen being Charlie Horn and George Meredith have in common? Okay, so what could the Munson crewmen have in common Could they have something in common with anybody aboard the Bradley? Yes. It turns out that um, George Meredith and Charlie Horn each have brothers whom are part of the Bradley crew. I think to me that's powerful right there. You know, it's one thing to carry on the family tradition. It's another thing to wonder, hey... You know, it's one thing to hear about someone else losing a family member who lost his life on a shipwreck out on one of the Great Lakes waters. It's another thing when it actually affects you, whether it's a brother or a nephew, an uncle, father, a cousin. It's when it hits, when it involves immediate family, it takes on a whole nother story, a whole nother meaning, rather, I should say. So... George Meredith and uh, Charlie Horn each have brothers whom are part of the Bradley crew. Uh, George Meredith's, Meredith's brother, Dennis, who served on the Bradley not not long before uh, November 18th, had advised George about the Bradley seaworthiness regarding the twisting and bending in waves, resulting in many or I should say multiple rivets coming out while on a recent voyage. So Dennis is very worried about the Bradley's durability. He knows that it's probably just a matter of time before the Bradley could succumb 
to Mother Nature's wrath, the wrath of uh, Lake Michigan's waters. He knows that this ship needs to get repaired as soon as possible. I mean, he, like everyone else aboard the Bradley crew, know that this ship will get repaired. It will get repaired after this last minute. Um, the repairs will start sometime after this last minute trip. The problem, though, is that it's come too late. On the other hand, you almost have to wonder, what if um, the Bradley crew went about going on another ship and did this last-minute assignment? Would any of them still have come home, or would any have still survived? I mean, we can't control when a storm happens, because we all know November, when the skies of November turn gloomy along the Great Lakes, anything is uncertain. And then again, nothing is ever certain. So, you know, we can't control the circumstances. But somebody's got to go out on the waters in the month of November to finish a last-minute job. And you take those chances, no matter how big or small the risks are. And some people would say this is what separates boys from men. So, yes, um, Dennis um, Meredith had lots of reasons to express his concerns behind the Bradley seaworthiness. George, his brother George, above uh, who's on board the Munson, respected his uh, concerns and understood them. But yet, George, it never occurred to George that the Bradley, that the Bradley was on borrowed time, and that the Bradley would succumb in just a short amount of time. What did Captain um, Paul Mueller and second mate Jürgen Schwand of the Christian Sartori, a 256-foot German freighter, what did they witness firsthand with their binoculars? Each man had spotted a large vessel roughly three and a half miles away showing signs of sinking. Okay, folks, three and a half miles away. What could um, Captain Mueller and second mate Jürgen Schwann have been observing three and a half miles away with their binoculars? The Carl D. Bradley sinking. The Bradley had been on the Sartori's radar for a good amount of time. However, the Sartori never got any messages pertaining to Elmer Fleming's Mayday calls. You're only three and a half miles away from the ship, but, but we're not able to receive any kind of um, access to a Mayday call. Is it fair to say that by the time uh, Elmer Fleming issued these Mayday calls that the ship had already broken? Yes. And is it fair to say that Elmer Fleming knew that it would only be a matter of time, a matter of, of a short period of time when the uh, radio in the pilot house would, um, would come apart, meaning that it would lose um, its antenna, it would lose its ability, the, there would be no uh, cable, there would be no no electric, no electrical means of communication. Yes, so we have to keep in mind that that the crew. It would be easy to think that the crew, the Christian Sartori, was just um, 
taking it easy and not um, thinking about the well-being of a ship three and a half miles away that was um, that had been on its radar. But we must take into consideration that any other ship that was out on the water on November 18th, especially along Lake Michigan, like the Christian Sartori is, wouldn't it be fair to say that the Sartori had been fighting weather storms for most of November 18th? Yes. This ship was moving at a snail's pace of about two to three miles an hour. So remember, folks, these ships are not like automobiles, you know, where you're driving 25 miles an hour in a 25-mile-an-hour um, speed limit zone. You know, they can't just slam on the brakes and, um, and cut down on their acceleration. I mean, they can reduce the speed, but it just doesn't happen with a light switch. Second mate Jürgen Schwann spotted with his binoculars the Bradley's lights going out on the forward part of the ship to her rolling out of control. So, yes, uh, we have to wonder, will the Christian Sartori make an effort to come to the Bradley's rescue? And if so, can the Sartori do anything to save other crewmen's lives? Well, it's one thing for a ship to lose her lights, but when a ship loses her power, I mean, it's one thing when a ship loses her lights, but when a ship, let me rephrase this, folks. Loss of lights not only results in losing power, but a ship without an engine is one which cannot, which can no longer steer. Do you hear that, folks? Loss of lights will result in losing power. In other words, you will not have a, be able to have a light switch, an effective light switch to turn on and off. But when your ship, when your ship doesn't have an engine to operate on, how can you how can you steer? How can you go forward? How can you change course to avoid getting hit by a rogue wave or two? You can't. You are at the mercy of Mother Nature here. Both um, Captain Mueller and Second Mate Schwand witnessed the Bradley explode from her backside. Can you imagine being one of those two men and witnessing the Bradley explode from her backside? That's frightening. Now all of a sudden you've got to wonder, okay, were there any men still underneath that ship? And what about the men above? Did they lose their lives right away with the uh, ship exploding from her backside? It'll... In a short amount of time, after the smoke clears, the Sartori heads straight into the area where the Bradley disappeared with the hopes that maybe they might be able to find someone or some or people clinging on to life and will be able to rescue them. Exactly how long did it take for the Bradley to break apart? After the first loud sound, or rather I should say noise, was initially heard. I'm going to give you all some choices here. Choice A is at 15 minutes. Choice B, 10 minutes. Choice C, 20 to 30 minutes. Or choice D, 4 to 5 minutes. So your choices again are the following folks. Choice A is 20 minutes, choice B, 15, 
Choice C, 20 to 30 minutes, or 25 to 30 minutes, let's say, or choice D, 4 to 5 minutes. The answer, folks, is going to shock you, but it's choice D, 4 to 5 minutes. Within 4 to 5 minutes is exactly just how long it took, or just rather how short of a time it took for the Bradley to break apart after the first loud uh, noise. But within that four to five minute uh, range, other heavy sounds followed. Whenever large waves gushed under the boat by hauling its midsection upward to bending the boat's deck in the middle, resulting with other sounds leading to the bent section going upward of 10 to 20 feet. Once the wave passed, the Bradley stern dropped, causing further deck deterioration. So, okay, folks, we, none of us, I know, obviously, I wasn't alive in 1958, but I have to picture for myself just how quick this ship is breaking apart after the first loud sound occurred, knowing, I mean, think about it, there's 60 seconds in a minute, folks, so we're looking at four to five minutes here, so that's really between 240 in 300 seconds, think about what how much destruction can happen within 240 to 300 seconds being the equivalent of four to five minutes. I mean, the weather conditions are right, especially with a ship that's on borrowed time, a ship that is um, that has seen better days, but a ship that is in such dire need of repair. So can you imagine um, this ship's midsection going upward, all of a sudden it, the boat's deck is bent in the middle, and then other, other sounds contribute to the bent section going upward of 10 to 20 feet. It's a very violent uh, breakup, folks. And if you were on that boat, oh yeah. You know, as like I said earlier, you have to be prepared for the unexpected, but you don't get to control how the unexpected starts or finishes. As the Bradley breaks apart violently, Captain Roland Bryan issues last resort tactics from sounding the abandoned ship signal. And here's something I didn't know, and I don't think most of you would know this, but I'm going to share it with you. Whenever a captain sounds the abandoned ship signal... It starts with seven short blasts, and then one long one on the whistle. Then you get the verbal command that Captain Roland Bryan issued. Run! Get your life jackets! This is where it could be very well now every man for himself. The only time a captain will say abandon ship is when he knows that everything else that he has tried has failed, and when he knows that it is that time is the matter of essence. These are trying times, but they are trying times in a short amount of time, folks. And it's fair to say that not everybody will probably survive. We hope that maybe more than 10 could survive, but that's not a guarantee, given the horrific circumstances that everybody aboard the Bradley is now facing. Given what the Bradley is now facing, 
What became the ship's greatest internal battle? Internal meaning inside, folks. External, outside. But what do you think now becomes the ship's greatest internal battle? Heavy equipment placed on the front and back ends that led to excess water rushing into the ship's cargo hold. Remember we talked the last podcast about how the... um, about how the um, cargo was, or rather equipment, was placed below uh, the ship's um, deck. Um, the The middle was very fragile, so that they felt that the best way to balance it was to not place too much cargo in the middle. They saw to it that an even amount was placed along the around the section where the bow is, as well as an even section from the stern. The problem, though, is that if you don't have really enough of any weight to add to the um, middle, that would at least keep the middle intact, especially given how um, fragile the Bradley has become now. It's fair game that the Bradley's middle will um, will receive the brunt of the damage before, um, before the uh, front and the back ends. But at the same time, um, given what's happened now, it's fair game for anything. So all this heavy equipment placed on the front and the back ends has has contributed to the excess of water that rushes into the cargo hold being in the middle. So it's, it's one of those double-edged swords now that, you know, that is either going to make or break, but sadly it's uh, breaking here. And to make matters worse, not all of the Bradley crewmen are dressed properly, given some men had been sleeping in their quarters when the initial alarm first sounded. Well, if you have been asleep, and now all of a sudden you're waking up to a ship that is um, has made a loud sound, and you have now received uh, alarms that are not typical, you know, this is a matter of life and death here, and it's one thing just to have on basic clothing, but with the weather temperatures plummeted like they have, forget about getting up and putting all your clothing on. You've got to make it up to the top deck, because if not, then you probably might just succumb um, below to the waters uh, gushing at a rapid pace. Besides the lifeboats, what else does the Bradley have boat-wise? Well, it's good to know that the Bradley does have more than one lifeboat, but are what, what else do you all think the Bradley has boat-wise? The Bradley has an 8-by-10-foot raft that, ha- that holds only 15 people. Well, you've got to hope, though, that, okay, that if you can get these other lifeboats out, but let's say not everybody makes it on the lifeboat. Thank heavens you've got that third option, this 8 by 10 foot raft that will hold 15 people. We'll find out here in a moment uh, just how many people could fit on the lifeboats. Although Frank Mays and other crewmen have undergone lifeboat drills, they can't control what's before them. What can't the crewmen of the Carl Bradley control? The Bradley's rapid sinking demise. So you can plan for uh, lifeboat drills all you want left and right. You can come up with hypothetical situations left and right. 
you can prepare for them like there's no tomorrow. You can prepare for them until you're blue in the face. But you don't get to control how the unexpected first happens, and you can't control how it's going to end. And for Frank Mays and these other crewmen who have, who have gone above left and right to prepare for the unexpected as well as securing everything inside and out to make sure that nothing were to uh, come apart and cause damage on the outside externally and inside internally. I mean, all that preparation's been great. But what's happened now, it's taken over. Mother Nature is showing her wrath of fury, especially in November, the deadliest month to be out on the Great Lakes, not just out on the Great Lakes, but rather the Great Lakes waters, regardless of whether it's Superior, Michigan, Huron, Erie, or Ontario. Do Frank Mays and other crewmen make an attempt to lower uh, one of the 22-foot, 25-man lifeboats? Did you hear that, folks? So these lifeboats can hold 25 men. Hey, there's nothing wrong with having a few extra lifeboats and a raft. You know, we can't assume that, okay, if we have one lifeboat and a raft, that everybody's going to have equal access so, do Frank Mays and the other crewmen make an attempt to lower one of the 22-foot, 25-man lifeboats? Yes. Despite the lifeboat being tangled up in cable, an attempt is made by taking an axe, but the cable itself doesn't uh, budge. So, in other words, they tried to take an axe to break the cable to get this boat down, lifeboat down, that is, but the uh, cable won't budge. In other words, it won't break apart. And that's not good because time is so precious here, folks. The Bradley being a large freighter at 638 feet long is more than two football fields in length. Well, the Titanic was uh, two and a half football fields in length at best. But given that the Bradley is 638 feet long and is more than two football fields in length, once the ship goes down, a.k.a. sinks, what do you think could happen to any of the crewmen? They could be trapped below decks to getting entangled in the wreckage. And that could make practical sense considering that the ship has split. Um, and when the ship has split, I mean, not to frighten you all, but when a ship has split, I mean, there, there are any, there are any, uh, there are any unlimited, there's just about anything possible that could result in your death, sadly. I mean, we don't get to choose how we wish to go, and do you think the crewmen of the Bradley wish... They don't get to control how they wish to go, but the, this is these are scary uh, scenarios here, folks. So think about it. You could get trapped below deck to where the water would take over and you could drown. You could get entangled in the wreckage to where, um, to where you would not be able to uh, free yourself. Some men run the potential of drowning instantly. And from an earlier podcast, we did learn that some of the uh, crewmen were not experienced swimmers. So that's a huge disadvantage right there. On the other hand, you could be a very experienced swimmer, but it doesn't automatically mean you might survive. And how so? Well, some run the risk of succumbing to the icy waters of Lake Michigan and ultimately hypothermia. 
In other words, hypothermia, it, it's a form of shock where um, your body temperature uh, plummets and, and hypothermia uh, sets in to where it uh, takes over your ability to um, your ability to survive in the frigid waters. Even with a life jacket on, folks, you're not guaranteed to survive. Despite Captain Bryan's plans to have everyone move toward the Bradley Stern for means of abandoning ship, okay? So, I, I gotta get, take my hats off to Captain Bryan, though. He has come up with a plan. It's a last-ditch effort. So, he's got to get everybody towards the Bradley Stern for the means to abandon the ship in hopes that with a raft or a lifeboat that you can, that we'll all be able to just get off the, sh the stern and get on to the, to the lifeboats and raft as swiftly as possible. Unfortunately, it does not happen like that. Um, Lake Michigan's fury sets in to where a mass wave takes over the Bradley's bow section where her front rolls violently resulting in the throwing, resulting in throwing the entire crew overboard. And of course, when I think of Overboard, I, I think of that, that comedy movie with Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn from the late 1980s, but that movie pales in comparison. You know, Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn both went overboard at different times in the movie, but that type of Overboard was humorous. There is nothing humorous, folks, about what happened to the crewmen of the Carl D. Bradley when the entire crew went overboard. Why is that, folks? Didn't I just mention earlier that, that the uh, waters were icy? Didn't I mention that the scenarios that could, have that could potentially happen to crewmen, including um, succumbing, possibly succumbing to hypothermia? Yeah. Yeah, it's nothing to be taken lightly. It's nothing to, to joke around. So, yes, this um, violent, uh, or rather I should say rogue wave, threw the entire crew overboard into the water. At what exact time on the evening of November 18, 1958, did the Carl D. Bradley officially sink to Lake Michigan's bottom? Did it happen at uh, 6.30 in the evening, folks? Did it happen at 7.30 or 5.30? Your choices, again, are the following. Choice A, 6.30. Choice B, 7.30. Or choice C, 5.30. The answer is choice C, folks, 5.30. Think about what happened, folks, in a short amount of time. And we're not anywhere close to midnight. We have six and a half hours to go till midnight. But yet, this uh, freighter that had been the largest on the Great Lakes waters for, for a good number of years now is uh, virtually gone. Despite confronting Lake Michigan's cold waters to facing the initial onslaught behind gasping for air, Frank Mays breaks the water's surface where he sees what's left of the Bradley's cargo hold filled with water, including the boat being split right down the middle. Although he has a life jacket on, He'll need something to hold on to for survival. And within a short amount of time, believe it or not, folks, within a short time, luck does come his way 
when Frank Mays himself spotted up close a pontoon-style raft. Is it fair to say that is the one that holds about 15 people? Yes. He spots this raft, and, and on one hand, the raft is a blessing. Why is that? Because Frank Mays is out of the water. However, there is a disadvantage. Well, how could there be a disadvantage to being on the raft if you're already out of the water? What is the raft lacking, folks? It's lacking oars. Why are oars important, folks? Because when you have oars to paddle with, you can, you can guide the direction that you want the boat to go or in this case, a raft to go. Without oars, <laughs> Lake Michigan is still in control. Not just Lake Michigan, but <laughs> Mother Nature. So, yes, he can be um, assured safety on a raft, but he can't control where the waters will take him while on the raft. Will Frank Mays pull someone else out of the water alive? Yes, he pulls, or rather I should say rescues, Elmer Fleming, whom earlier had been tossed 20 feet into the air and into the water. I can't imagine being tossed into the air 20 feet, as well as the same into the water. But Elmer Fleming survives, and after he, and after, where after he reached the surface, the raft itself was a couple of feet away from him. Is it fair to say that maybe God is looking after, um, has so far been looking after Frank uh, Mays and Elmer Fleming? Yes. But we should also keep in mind, too, that God wants all these other men whom are right now, they, whom have been unaccounted for, to also be spared. You know, God can't, uh, not to sound religious or and, and get into religious matters, but you know, God doesn't, God's not going to leave anybody behind, but at the same time, um, I guess it's fair to say that even God himself can't, um, how do I say it? God is looking after all of us, but God does not want anybody to suffer either. And I think the bigger question here is, is how can God himself ensure that everybody will either survive this ordeal or will be spared from further suffering. After all, there's a reason why this the title to this um, book, after the initial title of Record of Carl D. Bradley, meaning a true story of loss, survival, and rescue at sea, there is a reason why it's titled that, folks. Well, now that uh, Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming are on the raft, they don't have a whole lot of time to... Um, relax and take it easy. They are shouting out left and right, letting other crewmen know where they are. They, in other words, they are shouting out left and right at, at the top of their lungs. Can anybody hear us? Can anybody hear me? Please, if you're near our raft, come to us. We will help you get on the raft. How many other men do you think um, made it to this raft? Was it more than two, more than ten, or only two? 
Your choices are the following. More than two, more than ten, or only two. Only two other men, folks, uh, choice C. Only two other men made it to the raft, alive. Dennis Meredith and Gary Strezelecki. Whereas Frank Mays, Elmer Fleming, and Gary Strezelecki were better clothed, Dennis Meredith wasn't. And because of that, um, that factor, this will decrease Dennis Meredith's chances of survival under the current weather conditions. Now, just because you're better clothed, yes, it might help improve your chances, chances of survival, but it doesn't automatically guarantee 100% that you will. It, basically, in this situation, your chances are modified greatly if you are better clothed. The bigger question is going to be, is how soon can outside help come? Frank Mays and Gary Strezelecki each have relatives aboard the uh, Bradley, whom are nowhere to be found. Only one other person will get spotted, but once that's happened, not only is that man dead, but the wave carries him away for good. It's kind of sad to know right there, you would have seen up, up close firsthand that one of your crewmen is gone. Didn't have a chance to fight. The waves got him. The, the weather got him. The, the forces of nature got him. To where whatever impact came upon him right away, there was no chance of regaining consciousness. It's one of those uh, memories that for Frank Mays and, you know, uh, Elmer Fleming and Gary Strezelecki, that they probably will never forget. Even Dennis Meredith, who's uh, clinging on to life, none of them would. The men on the raft witness what's left of the Bradley from above. What else could they witness that has not already been witnessed yet, folks? The boilers now explode sending fire, steam, and smoke shooting high into the sky. All four men, I can't imagine having witnessed that, folks, fire, steam, and smoke shooting high into the sky. All four men have time on their side at the present moment. Okay? If you have some time on your side, that's great, but we can't sit back and get comfortable and think, oh, you know, somebody's going to come rescue us. No, you've got to still be thinking. You've still got to be... Um, you still got a plan. You've still got to come up with a way to retain your composure. You still have to find a way to ensure that you can survive because you don't know when another ship's going to come, but you got to hope that it's going to be soon. Because the more negative you stay and the more worry you become, the greater the fear itself will take over to the point where you may not even have any sanity left in you to overcome the most um, arduous of uh, circumstances before you. So yes, all four men have uh, time on their side at the present moment, but they don't know exactly when a rescue ship will arrive to save them. However, there is some good news to report. Elmer Fleming did spot a ship somewhere nearby, and he immediately goes about pulling out a flare 
you know, when you, you know what flares are, folks. You know, we see them on the roads whenever there's a car accident or, um, say, the uh, police and the fire and uh, rescue teams are out, especially if it's a very bad accident. They put flares on the road as a means of getting people to realize, hey, don't come up in this area. Um, you've got uh, police uh, and emergency crew directing traffic to avoid where the flares are. So for Elmer Fleming, he immediately goes about pulling out a flare and he strikes it to keeping it to keeping that flare over his head with the hope that the ship nearby recognizes the light. So there is some hope here, folks. Elmer Fleming, thank goodness he has that flare. Without that flare, who's going to be able to recognize this crew in the middle? Who's going to be able to recognize these four men in broad darkness? I mean, they don't have lanterns, folks. They don't have flashlights. This is the only thing that's saving them. You know, it's so easy to take electricity for granted, but when you are stranded out at sea in the middle of the night, just to have a flare, to me, that's better than having no electricity at all. So given just how cold and how uh, dire the weather conditions are on the evening of November 18, 1958, all four men are huddled as closely together as possible for shelter, seeking warmth. Remember, folks, we don't have, um, you know, these rafts don't have um, AC, uh, air conditioner, uh, heater units. So basically, no matter how well clothed you are, you've got to uh, be standing, you've got to be sitting next to one another for warmth. Because if not, you're going to, you're not going to get much warmth and you're going to, probably run the risk of um, of greater exposure to frostbite, um, greater exposure to um, to um, to becoming uh, cold to the point where um, other um, unforeseeable factors could set into play. But as their raft, as they're seeking warmth, as their raft supports them on, you know, how do I say this? The raft that they're on is supporting them. But here they are on North America's second largest body of water. North America's first largest body of water is Lake Superior. But Lake Michigan is second. What is the only thing that's going to keep these men alive, folks? They don't have any food. They don't have anything to drink. What are they going to have to cling to that's going to keep their heads up high in this time of crisis, this time of uncertainty? Hope, or I should say faith. They have to trust in one another that they're going to get through this. Because if they don't trust in one another and they don't cling to faith or hope, what else are they going to cling to for any means of survival? They're going to have to turn to one another to get through this but they're all going to have to cling to hope and survival. Folks, as of right now, only there are only four survivors out of 35. I would like to believe that maybe there still are other survivors out on the water that have not been accounted for yet, but we're going to find out in another podcast or two um, down the road if, in fact, there are other survivors. 
when I'm on the air again next with you all, we're going to uh, be learning about the um, the initial uh, Coast Guard search and rescue uh, missions. Well, thank you for your time, as always, uh, for listening, and I appreciate all of you for being such ardent uh, listeners and supporters of my uh, podcasts. Uh, without listeners like you all, I don't know where I would be. I'm sure I probably would have listeners, but having listeners like you all makes all the difference in the world. Thank you for your time, as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time with you all. Take care for now and stay safe.